Welcome to Nine to Thrive, the well-being podcast. I'm Julie Fisher, your host and positive psychology practitioner, coach, and well-being advocate. Here, you will find meaningful and lively conversations with experts where we explore the challenges to maintaining a strong sense of well-being, along with providing tips, tools, and strategies to thrive and flourish in our ever-changing and complex world. If you're ready to create more harmony, cultivate deeper connections, foster a greater sense of well-being, and live the life you long for, then you're in the right place. Thanks so much for being here. Let's begin our journey together. Hello, and welcome to Nine to Thrive, the well-being podcast, episode six. Ah, Today, we are talking about one of my favorite subjects, resilience, which is such an essential ingredient to thriving in every aspect of our lives. Why is that? Because life is filled with challenges, heartache, obstacles, and things that feel grossly unfair and can bring us to our knees. And resilience is basically our ability to get back up to move forward, to see a situation as impermanent. It's our ability to believe in ourselves. Resilience builds self-efficacy, that belief that we can actually get through really, really hard things. And that's what it takes to basically go and grow through the biggest challenges of our lives. It's also a muscle that gets stronger in adversity which means that it's built in discomfort, which is, let's be honest, not where most of us want to live all the time. Our guest today knows a lot about resilience, and I'm so excited to have her here to share her story and all the things she's learned about resilience, agency, mindset, and our belief in ourselves to create the life that we really deeply, deeply desire. Welcome, Merit. I am so happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Julie. I'm so happy to be here. I want to tell you a little bit about Merit. Merit Minimeyer is on a mission to eradicate executive mediocrity. She is the founder and CEO of Master of One Coaching. She employs 25 years of experience and her entrepreneurial DNA to help founders, leaders, and creatives exceed all expectations, including their own. Merritt is a professional certified coach, a recovering actor, I love that term, and an international speaker. Having rebuilt her life after widowhood at 35, she believes that conscious leaders are the number one solution to creating and sustaining a successful future and that anything is possible when powerful people do right by themselves, those whom they serve the planet and one another. I couldn't agree more, (laughs) Merit. It's like my battle cry. (laughs) A woman on a mission. I love that. I want to begin with your story. You grew up in an entrepreneurial family. And as a child, you knew a lot about business, more than the average, I'm going to say, kid knew about business. 
And yet that isn't where you started in adult life. I hope you can share a little bit about your family and how your experiences influenced you sort of early on in, you know, the choices you made. So, yes, yeah, so I had two separate, well, actually, they weren't, they weren't separate. They were they were linked, but they were differentiated businesses that were happening in my family simultaneously. So one was my, my mom and dad. My dad was an architect and my mom ran the business side of the architecture firm. So we did build and design. Um, and she also did some of the interiors. She ran the book. She did business development, you know, all the things. And I grew up every day hopping off the school bus in the middle of our my hometown and walking across the street and grabbing a cookie at the cookie shop for my dad and going upstairs to his office. And I would hang out there and other kids who had parents in the town, we would ride our bikes together. And we were like, it was sort of like the small business posse. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was very much a part of my immediate upbringing. I also like to say that I grew up instead of going playing in a sandbox, I grew up in a sawdust pile because my father would always take me to job sites. And I love that. It still is my favorite smell mm. in the world is the, is the smell of like fresh cut wood. It's, I, I love it. It's like a smell of possibility to me. And I still have a real fixation around real estate and, and houses. Like I, just, mm. I just love it. Yeah, I love, love it. I love that. So there's that piece of it. And I watched my dad, you know, after my parents split when I was 12, he would work and he was so passionate about his architecture and his drawing and his art. He was an amazing artist too. And he would take his slippers and his cup of coffee into his office at nine o'clock in the morning. And he would stay there until midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And just, wow. he just would work and work and work and work. And he just, he just loved it. So, and on the other side of that, my mom's family, my mother's father, my grandfather was a very gifted entrepreneur and fixer started out actually on the assembly line building aircraft and during World War II and then worked his way up. And I, I can't remember if it was that facility or another one, but anyway, he worked his way up the line, you know, figuratively and literally, yeah, literally. became, uh, became a manager and then ultimately ended up buying leading and then buying one of those companies. Wow. And by the time I came around in the seventies, uh, he, I think, it, yeah, I want to say had already started. Yes, had already started um, Stevens International, which was a or which became a publicly traded international company and that specialized in designing and building printing and currency presses. So we actually made money. And I was a teenager when that company went public. I used to travel with my I was the, and the only one in my family, actually two cousins, and they both run that business now with their mom and dad, my uncle and aunt. I'm the only one of the family that ever actually officially worked for the company, but everybody else did. And on that side of the family, yes. but I did grow up go, traveling around the world, going to trade shows, going to board meetings, shaking hands with the presidents of the bank of England. We printed money also in the U S and a few other countries. So I was really exposed to, to business on a grand scale, um, yes. hundreds, hundreds of employees across the country and manufacturing plants. And, you know, I can't remember four or five different cities in the U S uh, an office in Paris where my mother used to go on a regular basis and, and work with the team there and a, and a plant there. So, cause not only was my mom working in the business um, after my parents split. And so I got to like be the kid that, you know, worked with my mom who was in corporate world, but also my grandfather was a founder. It wasn't, you know, so it was like this really rich experience. And for a number of reasons, which I won't get too into right now, but I had a fair amount of trauma in my childhood. And as one does, <laughs> when you're small, you're trying to make sense of things yep. and your brain isn't fully developed. And I took that trauma and I lumped it in with every, it all just became one thing. Like childhood yes. was traumatic. 
And so therefore all of those other things were bad and painful mm-hmm. and money, money was the problem and the business was the pro or business in general was the problem. And I made some big, big assumptions and kind of created some truths around that, that in my rebellious adolescent brain had me go, I'm not doing any of that. Mm. Right. I am, I am, I'm turning away from it. It is evil and bad and wrong. And everybody is angry and they're me. Right. It just like, was like, I made huge assumptions and and created truths for myself. And so I went the other direction and decided to become an actor. (laughs) Which I love in the absence of fact, we create a story. That's exactly right. Right. Or even in my perception of facts. That's what I'm saying. But in the absence of literal facts, right? We're going to say what's recorded on a video recorder. Right. Yes. Especially when there are feelings involved, we create a story. Yeah. I I think that's how we do make sense of things, right? We we need to create a story that makes sense to us, especially traumatic things. Mm -hmm. And so that totally makes sense to me that you would say, I don't want any of this. And what drew you to acting? Um, so I would say immediately, I, I remember going to, my mother took me into um, San Francisco Ballet, I think the first time I was probably a toddler. And we used to go just about every year to the Nutcracker. And I remember being, there's actually a photograph of me about three years old and I'm holding my nutcracker on my fireplace mm. hearts and I'm like, I'm like looking at it longingly, you know? Um, and I would dance and, you know, uh, be a ballerina mm-hmm. in my living room and my parents would give me all kinds of, yay, right? As yes. parents do, they would encourage Yes. And again, making sense of that. And I also, I also learned to love a lot of it. Um, so I don't want to say that I don't want to paint it with, it with all the same brush and then yes. it's you know, bad or good. Yes. I got very into dance first um, and then theater as mm-hmm. a small kid and, um, and then music. I took piano, took voice, played the flute, played guitar, uh, playing multiple choirs, uh, won awards for that kind of thing. And I, you know, yeah. had to lead in every school play from the time I was, you know, maybe sixth grade. Learned Shakespeare very early. Mm-hmm. Uh, seventh grade, had a wonderful seventh grade teacher who taught me Shakespeare. Um, that was my first experience there. Uh, I studied abroad twice, um, once as a high school student doing a theater program at Oxford, another as a, as a college student doing a theater program at the University of London through my NYU program. And it just became, it, I think it became a safe community mm-hmm. for me in what was often chaotic and incredibly lonely also mm-hmm. as a kid. Theater became and performing, it kind of creates a family around you. Now, here's the thing. It's always temporary. <laughs> so it's this, yeah. it's, the, it's this beautiful experience where you share this incredible creative connection with people and you collaborate. It's a really, and I always say that like starting out in theater gave me incredible lessons, not just for life, but for leadership and entrepreneurship, because it's, it's basically just project after project. After, you're building a company. It's called a company. You build a company over yes. and over and over again. So, man, I can do that in my sleep. You know? Yes. And it's such a rewarding and deep and rich experience. And it's a little bit, and I want to be careful when I say this because I don't mean it in a judgmental way, but it's a little bit false because it's it's temporary. Right? Yes. Um, and so I was seeking, and what I mean by false is that I was seeking connection. I was seeking family relationship. Yes. And, and, it, and oftentimes it wouldn't carry through into real life, into yes. the rest of my life, into the rest of my life. Yes. 
Yes. So yes, it's almost like that experience. You're you're dropped into a production, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you are creating what I imagine feels like these deep connections because you are so entrenched in that project. Yes. For that period of time. And then that, that period of time is over and I'm imagining you're left feeling somewhat empty. You know, it's interesting. I was listening uh, recently to Adam Grant's podcast, Work Life, Mm -hmm. and he he had Brene Brown on, you know, Mm -hmm. and I can't, the fangirl over there. (laughs) And they were talking about why people are hesitant to be vulnerable at work. Mm-hmm. And what it means to be brave, and I think this is this is actually part of why I I steered so clear of corporate life and entrepreneurial life for a long time mm-hmm. because I did observe that I observed that it's not it was especially in the seventies and eighties and early nineties yes. it was not safe to be yourself yes your, your whole self and it still isn't in most in the majority of cases it's getting it's changing now but in theater. I could be my most wild, crazy, creative, yes. wackadoo kid self. And that was encouraged rather than just than judged. And so I think it was that was also safe. I could just be, I could be whole, you know, there. Yes. Um, and I could talk, I could, I could be vulnerable and emotional. In fact, that was important to be vulnerable and emotional in those yes. circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It is. It, that's such an interesting yeah, observation, because I'm guessing that still is what attracts people to theater. Yeah, I think you know, so. It's a, it's a safe container where you can be wildly, passionately yourself mm-hmm. and probably call upon emotions that in many circles, Merit, might not be welcomed. That's right. Depending on the family environment, depending on the family dynamic you came from, you know, corporate settings, whatever those other things. Yeah. It's like I said, such an interesting observation. Thank you for sharing that. Actually, it just, it just kind of came out of my, I mean, to me, as I was talking about it, like that actually makes a lot of sense to me that I could, yeah. Totally. It totally makes sense. And like I said, totally makes sense why there's still a huge attraction in a world that still tamps down authenticity in a lot of circles, why there's such an attraction to that. I want to move to you getting married and you are in your mid thirties and you have these three young children and your husband collapses and is then diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor. Can't imagine what that day felt like. You talk about receiving an email from a friend the day he died that seemed to change everything for you. Will you share a little bit about that journey? Mm-hmm. Sure. And thank you for asking. So, yeah, it, it was uh, it was such a shock because he was so vibrant and so alive and so present in his body and seemed very healthy and strong and and so engaged in his life in many respects. And so it was completely out of the blue in the moment. I think if we look back, we could probably go, Oh, maybe, but you know, why would we look for something like that when you don't, you don't even know. And also at that age, right. He was, he was an outlier in terms of where he had some, a curve for for glioblastoma grade four, which is what he died from. And um, most people who are diagnosed with that are in their sixties. 
And so mm. he was he was 39 um, when he was diagnosed. So it was, and we had just, there's a, a lot of things that come together where we just felt like we could, could take a breath together as a family. Mm. And, uh, and, and we were just kind of hitting our stride and, and it was like, just that smacked us down. So that was about a, a, a 13 month journey of his treatment and decline and ultimate passing. The night he died, I got that email and it was from a friend an energy healer who worked with him during his process and with me and the kids and mostly with him though. And she, she really, they got to know each other very well. And she was very supportive of him and all of us. And she sent me an email of his, of some of the last words he ever wrote. And mm-hmm. I talked about what he wanted for the kids and how grateful he was for the time that we had together and what he hoped for me, you know, sort of releasing me of any, if there's any, any perceived obligation of me, you know, needing to yeah. hold on. He's like, don't do that. Go, you know, live your life. Go live love. your life. Yeah. yeah. And the last six words of the email were choose well, choose wisely, choose love. And that struck me so clearly yeah. in that moment. Most people, when I tell this story, they hear well, wisely, and love. They think, oh, that's so generous and gifting. What a beautiful soul. All true. And what's kind of planted a seed in me in that moment was the word shoes. Yeah. I was going to say, when you read, when when I yeah. first read about it, that was my, um, what struck me was that word of choice. Yeah. Because we all have that. And when we're so caught up in checking the boxes of all the things we think we should do, whether it's, you know, get a degree or the profession or the kids, whatever it is, white picket fence. And we had done all those things. <laughs> and and it's just I was in this feeling of I think because I had not reconciled this creative part of me with the business part of me, I had chosen one over the other. And then I burned out on the theater part of me and I'd chosen away from theater and said, no. So that I was sort of at sea for the better part of 15 years. Mm. And I didn't know, it didn't, it didn't occur to me that I had a choice. And even though I had made lots of decisions, mm-hmm. deci- decisions are different than choices, right? Like They are. Know, yeah. Yep. So decisions to me are sort of like, they're commitments, right? But a choice is like, oh, I can do anything. Mm-hmm. It's not yes. binary. It's not binary. Exactly. And it's the one thing. There's so much outside. And I'm, I'm guessing in that moment, this was one of those moments. There's so many things outside of ourselves that we have absolutely no control over. And so choice is one of the very few things we do have control over. I mean, I think for me, that's always... What strikes me about that word is in a sea of world that seems to come at us in a lot of ways, you know, there's a lot of things coming at us all the time that where we don't have agency. Yeah, we get to choose how we show up. We get to choose how we look at a situation. We get to choose how we move forward. Mm-hmm. We get to choose whether we get up merit, right? Yes. I think it's, I think it's that whole, so, you know, resilience is, is strengthened in times of challenge and we all know people who are resilient and I don't know about you, but I also have known people who don't seem to be as resilient. It's yeah. much more difficult 
for them to get up. And I think there are a lot of things that help build resilience. Connection and community is one of them, feeling supported, a sense of self-efficacy, the belief in ourselves that we can actually do hard things, Mm -hmm. self-determination, that idea of I get to choose, right? I feel an autonomous sense within myself, you know, grit, Angela Duckworth's great book on grit, you know, again, some people seem to have an ability. And I think there are all these things that scaffold us to be resilient or to have grip. I think a sense of hope and optimism, Mm -hmm. right? This idea that I can see the impermanence of this situation and I can see a future where I may not feel like I'm on my knees anymore, or I may not be grieving in the same way that there are so many things that could happen, so many opportunities and possibilities out there. Uh, I think gratitude is another piece. Being able to hold that both and, being able to hold the huge struggle with things that are good. And sometimes it's simply the people around us, right? Sometimes it's the people who are supporting us. What tools, like when you think back, what tools did you pull upon? To start building that resilience. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually. And so one of the things that trauma does to a brain is it tries to convince us that we're alone. Yeah. And until my husband died or got sick, I was convinced that I had to do everything myself. And I also grew up as an only child. And so I just had that experience of being self. And I was trained. And I I think this is a good thing to be self-sufficient. Yep. Um, independent and self-sufficient and do things yourself and also have that just general spirit like also you know the entrepreneurial genes and all those things right yes i was going to say i'm guessing there is like the those are the unconscious things you get from growing up in a really entrepreneurial environment for sure for sure so there's all good things and the flip side of that the dark side of that is that when you have trauma it's you know you're alone you're the only one and you've been rejected and you're right so Unconsciously, I had been operating under the truth, quote, that mm-hmm. it was only up to me. Like, mm-hmm. if anything was going to be done, I was going to be done myself. Like, I had to be the one to do it. No one was reliable. And I didn't even necessarily say those things out loud or really no. know that I think thought them. But when it came down to it, that's what I believed. Yeah, that's those, those are those unconscious beliefs that, like yeah. you're saying, we don't say those out loud. Yes. However, yeah. what propels us forward is well, who else would do it, right? right. It's almost right. like, well, right. who else would do it but me? Right, exactly. And why, why am I always having to be the one to do it? Why, do yes. It? Why is nobody here to help me, right? There's, and that's mm-hmm. sort of a, a, a helplessness. Yes. And energy energy yeah. leadership, we would call that a victim mentality. Not yes, exactly. Judge, victim mentality. Exactly. It's a sense of being powerless, right? Yep. But it, sh- it shows up as being strong and independent. So that's tricky. So I bring that up because up until the moment that he got sick, and I was so overwhelmed with three little kids, two of whom had some very significant special needs. I was so overwhelmed. I couldn't do it. I just, I was like, oh, I just can't. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and you mentioned community earlier. That was when I, I had, I had to let go of mm-hmm. my, I'm the only one I can do it myself. Mm-hmm. 
don't help me. My second one gets like a three-year-old. Like I can do it myself. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I had, yes. I had to let go of it because I just couldn't do it. I, there was just, I didn't, it's, it was impossible for me to get through that period of my life and do it myself. Yeah. So that was really difficult for me to learn, mm. to learn how to, 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 to rely on help and to be okay, to actually embrace the community. I'm still learning it, but and now I'm much more open to it. And I think, so when you talk about tools, I say the thing to learn, lean into first is community. Specifically, I would say um, fellow entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and fellow seekers. Mm. Yes. So I'm a, I'm a part of a few different communities that are, that would fall into those categories. Um, also, women who are in business. I'm in a community, yes. a couple communities around that too. Though I love working with men and people of all certain, you know, all genders. Yes. Uh, so, but, but as we identify, right, with, with certain experiences, it's also great to have among your community groups, among your affinity, the people you have affinity with, to have people who can relate to your experiences. Totally. And then people who have different experiences to make your life richer. So, uh, so that would be the the first thing I would say would be community. Um, also in that time, though I had played with meditation and yoga, you know, off and on since I was a teenager, I leaned and still do lean heavily into meditation sometimes more than others, but that's a regular practice for me. So meditation is really important. It's something that I tap into multiple times a day, whether it's totally focused and present or whether it's just thoughtful reflection or asking myself questions and mm-hmm. intentional. And then along the lines of meditation, and I would say intuitive work. I've actually kind of put those together. Related to those are, is writing, reflective writing. Mm-hmm. And writing has something that's always been come pretty naturally to me. Not always easily, but naturally. Yeah. And I've taken, I've been a journal writer since I was a, you know, a preteen. And Love so that. even if it's just a few words a day around intention mm-hmm. or lists of things that I want to get rid of in my brain before I go to bed or whatever it is, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in a regular practice of writing. So that I can make sense, so that I can organize my thoughts, so I can give myself some feedback, uh, and so I can sort of take out the trash <laughs> yes. in my head. Yeah, those are such great tools. I think all of them speak to what I make up for you back then was making different choices, right? Mm-hmm. So that idea of it sounds like you, I am a recovering overfunctioner, what I call a recovering mm-hmm. overfunctioner, right? It sounds like yes. you were also that. Yes. Yes. And and there's a whole bunch of stories that drive overfunctioning. And that idea that overfunctioning, overfunctioners help co-create underfunctioning, mm-hmm. right? In yes. other people. And so that idea that when all of a sudden we stop overfunctioning and we're gonna make a different choice because this overfunctioning is literally untenable. We can't do that anymore. It is fascinating how whole dynamics change. And the, the possibilities that are opened up for people who want to give, which mm-hmm. maybe we haven't allowed for that. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine back then, as you are going through on top of all of the logistics we just had a very good friend pass away in 23 of Aglio. Mm-hmm. And so, and we were with him his whole journey. And so not only the logistics, when I think of, you know, how upended their lives were, right, during the mm-hmm. whole thing, it's opening also for 
the grieving process, right? The whole emotional side of it, not only the logistical side, but just the emotional side of allowing people in to see that really, really hard time and that space that you're in, in a very real and vulnerable way. And that's a choice. Yeah, that is a choice. Yeah. One of the things I talk about as a kind of, I, of course, my tongue is firmly planted in my chief when I say recovering actor, and I don't mean to minimize what recovery is, but yeah. I say that because the life of a performer is so, you're so vulnerable so much of the time mm-hmm. that I basically had no boundaries, right? I mean, and it's mm-hmm. hard to have boundaries when you're a performer because you have to be vulnerable. To hold that of like someone who was terrified of being vulnerable and also required Yes. vulnerability from to for my craft that was that was ultimately what broke me of that and the reason i talk about being a recovering actor in some part is learning how to have boundaries and also be vulnerable at the same time mm-hmm. Act, what actors are brilliant at the most powerful most effective actors are brilliant at holding space and being present recently a uh, judy dench was on there's a uh a graham norton show which she's been on many times but there was a she just was on recently and um, I actually posted this on my Instagram so you can check it out there on my Facebook. He says, well, you know, Judy Dench, you're like a, you're like a Shakespeare genius, you know, can you do some Shakespeare for us? And she's like, okay, I'll do a sonnet. And like, she just pulls this 14 line sonnet out of the air. Right. I mean, which, of course she's been doing this for, she's almost yes. 90. Yes. And she had that entire room of 400 or 600 people, whatever it was completely captivated in 14 lines of poetry. And I mean, even I who know this on it and I've seen her work, you know, my whole life, I was like, sit there with my jaw on the floor. So brilliant. And, and what was so poignant about that was presence. And actors are just experts at this, the good ones. Presence also requires vulnerability because you have to be open with what is coming up, whether it's, you know, whatever emotion is coming up, whatever emotion is coming to you from other people. And to tie that into resilience in your own body with other people even though it's scary, that actually can be an incredible asset in terms of resilience because you're not running from the pain. I think it's an ability, right? It's an ability to presence. It's almost a strategy to say, what do I need to do to drop in to, and I think that's also like, can I drop into my body? Can I, you know, so much of society, especially with women is sort of disowning. We've been sort of, sort of trained to disown our bodies. And I think that dropping into your body and feeling your way through what's actually present and not, again, it is that whole, we grow through what we go through, but we have to feel the emotions to Mm -hmm. completion. Like in the 15 commitments of conscious leadership, that's one of the things they talk about is can we feel our emotions to completion so that we can move forward, not having any of that baggage, that residual baggage left over. The other thing that's really interesting about you saying holding the container, so holding space and presencing, those are also the things we do as a coach. That's right. (laughs) And so it's interesting. I want to know what brought you to coaching. And it makes sense to me when you say it that way, that you arrived at coaching because mm-hmm. you already had those skills, mm-hmm. which are probably the two biggest in the macro sense, the two biggest skills we need as coaches or guides or. Yeah. I was so relieved and so excited when I found coaching. 
I didn't, I, I didn't know mm. what it was. I was, I had trained many, many hundreds of leaders in my career and I had never been through a leadership training program myself. I mean, I'd been, I'd taken classes in grad school, but I, and I'd read books and stuff, but I, and I, so the way I trained leaders was through a specific lens of diversity, equity, inclusion. So I had this incredible experience of working with corporate leaders, leaders and, and law enforcement and uh, public officials and entertainers and people very high up in their fields, high profile people, but I had never actually like gone through the academic process of like, oh, this is how you do it Mm -hmm. (laughs) for myself. So I finally did that in 2017 and 18. And I was so excited because I wanted to be, again, that affinity. I wanted to be in a community of people who are seeking this kind of thing. In that program, one of the presenters was a leadership coach. She was a PhD from Yale, I think, as a psychologist and Mm -hmm. also she had trained to be an executive coach and was leaning into coaching more, which is, again, I think so fascinating. Talk mm-hmm. about achievement, right? And here she mm-hmm. is doing this thing that seems that doesn't require all those years of school necessarily, yeah. but it does require it does require skills of presence, focus, vulnerability, thoughtfulness, mm-hmm. analysis, like all those things. So she presents about leadership and I think executive fun- functioning and a couple of things. And I was like, what is this? coaching thing that you do. And she went, Oh, interesting. Yes. Let's have a chat. (laughs) And she opened the door for me. She was, she said, because I knew that I wanted to go out my own. I didn't know what it was going to be. I had no idea. I was like, I don't have an idea. Finally trying to reconcile those entrepreneurial, like, you know, yes. And she, and I said, but I've never run a corporation. I've never been a CEO of a corporation. Like how do I, she's like, but you've worked with hundreds of them. And I said, well, yeah. And she said, you don't have to do that in order to be a great coach. You need to have these skills to be a great coach. And you have to understand their, what they're coming from in their world, which you do in order to work with this, this particular population, right? And so I did some research and I found the uh, coaching program that I went to. And I've got to tell you, from the moment I walked into that room, it was like I was home. Mm. And I had, I had even gone to grad school at one point. I was three quarters of the way through a mental health counseling master's degree before when, when Peter got sick, which then, of course, I couldn't complete. So I, I had started seeing the synthesis mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. performing and, um, and therapy and, and helping modalities. And I started to understand where the connections were. A lot of the same exercises and processes, just different application, you know, but all understanding human human behavior, understanding what motivates people, right? Like you hear this cliche about actors, like, what's my motivation? But what they're asking is like, what am I, why am I doing what I'm doing? And then what are my tactics that I'm going to, that I'm going to apply in order to get what I want? Gosh, isn't that the same thing what we do in coaching? (laughs) Who are you being? Yes. How are you showing up? How are you presenting yourself? Like those are all action questions. And I was so, so, so grateful to be able to find coaching in a way, because not only did it, it check the box of me being able to go out on my own mm-hmm. it checked the box of me able to using the skills and gifts that I have in order to apply them in a way that was different than I had done before in a way that felt more aligned with me. It also, the reason I ultimately left acting was because I felt like I couldn't make enough of a difference in people's lives. Now that's not mm-hmm. true for everybody. Theater is really important. The arts are incredibly important in our culture and society. And I do not mean to minimize that at all. But for my calling, for my my purpose, I felt like I wasn't going to make the difference I wanted to make and have the impact that I wanted to make specifically doing that. So when I found coaching, it was like, oh, it all made sense. The people, the people that I met were like, oh my gosh, I've been looking for 40 years for my people and you are here. 
And the clients I have are like, oh my gosh, I've been looking for all this time for my people and you are here. <laughs> like it's yes. Just, it has, yes. It, it's been such a gift in my life. Yeah. It's so interesting. I think so often if we write a book, we write the book that we wished we had had in our lives. And I think often we become what we what we wished we had had. You know, I think it's that sometimes, oh, I wished I had had a coach when I was younger. I wish I had had a coach when I was younger. Yeah. I wished I had, you know, and I also believe we have to go through all of these experiences to get where we are. And I think part of what does attract us and what drives our, what I call big P purpose, which is the impact we want to make in the world, you know, and then we can do it with our little P purpose, the work that we do, right. That can help contribute to Mm -hmm. what we really, the impact we want to make. And I want to talk a little bit about meaning and purpose. So as human beings, we're meaning makers. So I started with that whole idea of we want to make sense of things. And in the absence of facts, we're going to create a story to do that. Our language it was a way to create meaning when you know man was first walking around here. And especially when things are hard, I think we want to make sense out of things. Yeah. And I see people come out of really hard seasons or really hard situations with a renewed sense of purpose and wanting to make meaning in life. What do you think? Tell me your thoughts on that. Because like I said, I see it, sort of see it time and time again. In my experience, my my personal experience and also my observation of that very same phenomenon you're talking about, crises brings our priorities into focus. And our values into focus because it forces us to make choices. Like I said, at that time when I was, you know, so exhausted and so depleted, I couldn't, I couldn't help but lean on other people because I didn't have, I had to make that choice. Mm-hmm. I, I could either hang on to my stubbornness and my, like, you know, my, my quote independence end quote, or I could make a choice to actually move through that and be okay. <laughs> right. I could have yes. died on the hill of my independence. You and I talk about that all the time with our clients. Right. And that's, but most people do not go around talking or thinking about their priorities and their values. You know, maybe a goal here and there, but most people don't think about that. So crisis forces that into the forefront of our picture, right? And the other thing about that, I will say is that I often talk about looking over into the edge of the abyss. Yeah. (laughs) Like I had a very clear, I was very aware, excruciatingly aware of my choice to stay here in the world. Or not. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, I can step over the edge. That would that would get rid of all the pain and anxiety that I'm in and all the grief that I'm in. I could do that. I could disappear. Yeah. And I don't mean to be blunt about that, but well, actually I do mean to be blunt about it. I just I mean just to be I want to create the the care around that that I that it deserves. And I mean it's a very clear visual for me. It was like there's the edge of the abyss, and here I can step back and here on this side of the edge are my children, mm-hmm. the potential future I can have, the people who love me, even though I'm a disaster, I'm a dumpster fire of a human at this moment <laughs> in my life, Yes, <laughs> right? The potential of all the things that I might want to accomplish and dream of or not even sure, not even know what those are yet. What, what that experience gave me was not a total, not a total do-over, but it allowed me to reset the trajectory of my life. And I was going one way. 
you know, yes. with him. Yes. And, and we hadn't, we were just doing the thing. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, there's no more thing to do with him. Okay. So then what are my choices? And I mean, it did put a fine point on it. So all three of my children are adopted at that time. The twins, the ones that had the special needs at the time were still in foster care. And my adoption date was two weeks after Peter Pot passed. So that whole wow. year, yeah. people were still asking me, are you sure you want to, you want to keep the kids? And I got very offended by that question, you know, yes. really indignant about it. And I was like, what do you mean they're my children? Like, you don't just give up. But looking back, I can see why people were asking that question. It wasn't so, to offend me. It, it was really like, are you are you sure that you want to have this life with these children and make the choice to commit to them your whole life when you, you have this, like, it's there's, there's a fork in the road here. Or there's several. And that was one of the very powerful, you know, most important choices of my life. And I make it every day, as you know. Yes. It's interesting. I, I do think when we go through really, really hard times and things happen, you know, bad things happen. Why do bad things happen to good people? When bad things happen, things that feel bad in our nervous system and, and knock us off our feet. I do think it is like this lens comes into focus. Like maybe there were some blurry things out there and this lens can really come into focus on what's important. And I think you also are speaking to this fork being, I'm going to grieve the loss of this life that I thought I was going to have. And you had a choice. You could stay stuck in that grief mm -hmm. of yeah, the loss of that, right? Mm -hmm. the and that's completely understandable, the loss totally. of that. and. Because so much of our life experience is based on expectations, right? We see that future and mm -hmm. that's how we see it going. And when it doesn't happen, again, that's that's a place a lot of people can just get knocked off their feet based on, wait a second, that wasn't how, that's not how it's supposed to happen. It was supposed mm -hmm. to happen this way. And this idea that you could have stayed there or you can say, okay, that's not going to happen. And I'm heartbroken over that. And there are so many reasons that that makes me extremely sad. And there are also so many possibilities over here. You know, when I was going through all that grief and people would say, even when Peter was alive and he was sick, people would say to me, it's not fair. Why you? Why does this happen to him? You all are such a lovely family. Like, like you said, what good things happen to bad people. I mean, right. Bad things happen to good people, rather. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Things happen to people. So, and I was listening to, I think it was, I want to say it was Roseanne Cash. I, I can't, I can't be hundred percent on that, but she was talking about her losses and her grieving in her life and her illness. I, I think she was talking about her own illness. This has been a long time now. So I forgive the, the, the lack of clarity on this, but people said the same thing to her. Why you, why you? And she said, and she's telling the story on the radio I'm listening to. She said, why not me? Why not me? Right. Why not me? And that question, I was like, ooh, I really leaned into that question because I felt that. But what that does, what that question does is it takes us out of that victim mode. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a very simple reframing of, oh, right. Things happen to people. Things happen it's to not, people. Right. And bad things are good things to good people or bad people. Things just happen to people. And, and people, if you engage in life. 
things happen. <laughs> so Yes, yes, things happen. And, you know, for me over here, Merit, I'm not rejoicing when, when things happen to any people. Yeah, I don't think there's some director up there saying, you know, this bad thing's going to happen to you or, right. or Peter's, you know, or giving Peter a glio. I don't believe that's me personally. Don't believe that that's how life works. And it always comes back to choice. So when the bad thing happens, we have a choice to build our resilience muscle or not, right? I mean, that's, that's what it, see, it seems like. And we have so many other choices, but maybe the first choice is, do I want to get back up? Right. right. It's resilience is built in the getting back up. And yes. when I'm down on the ground, my first choice is, do I want to get my butt back up? Yeah. And get back into this thing called life. I think it's also really important to mention that when you're on the ground and you feel, and maybe one feels like I, cause I felt this too. I couldn't get up on my own. Yes. Don't get, get up on your own. <laughs> Yes. Get up with people. Get up with people. Find a, find support. Find a therapist. Find a family, friends, like support groups. Like do everything you can to yes. find the people who will help you, even if it's people who you didn't even know before. We're not built to do it alone. That's not actually we're social creatures. And yes. So this, this false sense of independence that I had was really working against me. It was a detriment. And it it almost broke me. You know, I mean, it, if I were to have chosen to try to go that route, I would not have been able to get up on my, I would, it just wouldn't yes. happen. Yes. So I want to say yeah. really clearly, I mean, when, you know, when we're talking about recovery and I made a sort of a, a joke about that, but you know, the people in my life were in recovery for substance abuse. Mm. The whole premise of that is to walk into a group of other people who totally. want to stop drinking and doing drugs. Totally. I don't really know you this story too. That yes. is the criteria for being in the room. Yes, exactly. You know, people, right? Yep. Who want to stop drinking? So, like, that's it. Find the people. That's Find the people. Yeah. I agree. I totally agree. I also have a lot of people in recovery in my life, and it is done in community. You know, right. I, I mean, it is it is done in community. Whether you've gone to treatment, that's done in community. Whether you're part of a a 12-step program or any kind of recovery community, Whatever, yeah. it is done in community. And, and I think it comes back to, that was the first word I said when I said there are things that I think are tools to build resilience and connection. I think number one is that idea that I'm not alone. Whatever's knocking me down, I can get up because I'm not alone. I do have people who yeah. are going to, even if I'm resisting them, right? Like even if I'm resisting, there are people out there. And I think today, I don't know if you feel this way, Mira, but I feel like today there is so much support available yeah. for so many areas that people are, could possibly be struggling in. Yes, there. I mean, way more than even even the twelve years ago that I was going through my thing, and yes, um, 
I mean, five years ago, I think. I mean, the way the world has shifted to virtual connections. That's been happening for a long time, but right, certainly. But the pandemic, I think, shot it, right. The pandemic shot it up and people became much more comfortable connecting in community this way. I mean, here you and I are, right? We don't even know each other. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. We only know each other virtually. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love this conversation. So building resilience is, like I said, I think, such an essential piece of thriving in this complicated world that we're living in. And I ask every guest on the podcast what their top three tools that they use for thriving. So what are yours? I'm still learning this because I think that, I mean, thriving is a big word. And I would say, if I'm honest, that I am, I have just reached a point in my life where I am ready to thrive for real. Mm, I love that. Just now. So I've just turned, I turned 47 in November. Mm. Um, we've done a lot of rebuilding, a lot of healing. And I, I'm, I am now ready to create, I'm, my, one of my main messages in my work is creating greatness. I'm ready to create greatness for real and earnest in my own life and for my family and for what that means for me going forward. So I'm not really sure what my tools are beyond what I've already mentioned to or today because yeah. I'm not I haven't been there yet. What I will say is I continue to lean in the community of people who are I mentioned earlier people who are seekers. Mm-hmm. I think, and I'm actually going to use seeking as an answer. Yep, and I think that's such that as a, as a tool. Yeah, learning, I, learn, seeking, learning. Though that is such an you know, I mean, it's not only. Uh, is such an essential part of neuroplasticity and all these yeah. things, all these good things that are happening in our brain. Yes. It, it does keep us interested. I mean, the, yeah. the whole idea of learning and seeking new things, I so consider myself a lifelong learner. And when mm-hmm. I stop learning, I think a part of me will not thrive. Yeah. For sure. Agreed. So I have a very strong demand signal, internal demand signal for seeking and, and, and learning and synthesizing and applying. So mm-hmm. That process, I think, will serve me, continue to serve me well and has already, you know, most of my life. So I've been put that as a tool set toolkit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and certainly meditating and writing, going back to those tools. Yes. The other thing that I think that I'm becoming increasingly aware of, the importance of at this stage of my life, it is physical activity, you know, yoga. I've just started swimming after 35, 30 years Ooh. of not Love really something I, um, because I'm just really, I'm so, I had a health situation this past year and uh, where I had to have a surgery and everything's fine. It just has brought that, like it's like crisis brings into that clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did, it just has become so, so clear to me that like, I have a chiropractor friend who says the first 40 years are free and the rest is on you. That's <laughs> such a good way to put it. So true. Yes, it's so true. As I, I in this year will turn 60, I would agree. I'm actually going to say for me, that would be the first 50 years. And this last decade has just been, I've had to take much better care of my physical being consciously. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I love those, Merit. I love those. Thank you so much for showing up here for your vulnerability, for just you being authentically you. I appreciate you. And I want to say thank you to all of our thrivers listening together. Let's be brave, curious, grateful, and kind. And we will see you next time. 
We've come to the end, my friends. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Nine to Thrive, the well-being podcast. I really appreciate you listening. I invite you to follow and like this show on whatever platform you're using. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend, share it on social media, or write a review. My goal is to provide useful information that will help you to thrive and flourish, and I always welcome your feedback. If you want to receive more strategies to increase your well-being in your inbox each month, head over to my website, juliefishercoaching.com and sign up for my newsletter. Until next time, take care, Thrivers.